0: Well, good morning, everybody, as we come in and have a seat. Good morning to those of you who are online. Good morning to those of you in the future who are watching this at a different time. Um, we, uh, this is Palm Sunday, isn't it? Right. So that means, uh, it means that Jesus is King. And we are going to be talking about that today from an unlikely source because we're going to be talking about Genesis. Um, I just want to take a minute, though, So some of you have been coming here a long time and have seen me preach a lot. Some of you are newer and don't know me as well, but I I just want to put something on the table first. I preach here out of obedience and because I love you guys, obedience to the King, for the church, because I love you. I don't get paid for it. It's volunteer. I get a lot out of it, meaning I I learn a lot, and it's a great joy for me, but I don't have any... Agenda. This isn't a career for me. It's not a, um, this isn't just me expanding my interests. I'm not pursuing anything. This is before God for you guys. And I hope you know that and believe that. Because as we go into Genesis, we're going to be tackling some stuff. And I want you to, when we get to stuff that unsettles you, upsets you, freaks you out a little bit, sounds different from what you've heard before, then I just want you to remember that there's no hidden agenda. I'm not saying I'm right about every single thing. I'm a flawed man, and we, we bring this stuff before God. And I, I bring everything I bring to you, I bring before God with a clear conscience that he knows that I'm doing the best I can, and I'm not bringing anything extra. There's a lot of stuff. Everybody who knows me knows I have opinions on, on everything. I can go ad infinitum on all kinds of stuff, everything from you know, shoes to finance, whatever you want, but I don't bring that here because this isn't my time. This is God's time to work in you and in your heart, and all I am is the, the vessel that he's provided the church for this morning. And of course we have some other vessels that he brings on other mornings and we all work hard to bring it and we all have that same spirit that we we're not we're not getting anything out of it except the satisfaction that we care about you and that we serve our king together and i put that up front here because what's happened is we've prepared genesis and we've been working on it i've been working on it for since october um, really doing a deep dive to to try and understand it i went into this saying. I have a good background in Genesis. I, uh, Rachel, my wife, and I, the first date, at least I called it a date. She wouldn't call it a date. We were in the eighth grade, and we went to an Answers in Genesis conference, and I met Ken Ham, and, like, I I know this stuff, right? Um, she refused to call it a date. She just said, my family had an extra ticket. I was the only person you could think of who would care to go. <laughs> I, I called it a date. Um, and it was, it was fun. Um, but... So I I thought I thought like, Oh, I've got a background in this. I know Genesis, I've been through Genesis many times, and I just went into it praying, God open my eyes to see Genesis, to understand it and to see what your church body needs from this book because we've talked about going to Genesis for a long time and it's a lot to, to bite off. It's a big, complicated, hairy, thick book. Um, For your comfort, we're going to focus first on the first 11 chapters and probably take a break and then come back and tackle more of it later. So mostly I'm thinking about the first 11, 11, 12 chapters. Well, God's just blown my mind with Genesis. Um, He's unfolded things and narratives and truths that I just never saw before. And I've wrestled a lot with how much of that to bring to each of you or to this body, and I've concluded that very carefully and very deliberately I'm going to try not to hold too much back, and the reason why is I think that this message and this study is exceedingly relevant, exceedingly relevant, because Genesis is the, the beginning that sets in motion purposefully the events for the end. And as Dan talked a little bit about last week, you can understand Revelation a whole lot better if you understand Genesis. And I've become convinced that this stuff is very, very relevant, more relevant than we might be comfortable acknowledging. In other words, I think we're close, guys. I think that it's very important that we read And understand what's going on because one of the uh, primary features of the end times is there will be a lot of deception. Jesus says there will be a great deception, that many, many will fall away. And so I think it's more important than ever that we understand the narrative of Scripture, what God is doing, and how those things might look, and what kind of deceptions may try and um, tear us down. And I'm not talking even... I mean, setting aside all the, the political upheaval and social upheaval, this stuff is bigger than that. It's bigger, it's more profound, it's weightier, it's more important, and in many cases, more terrifying. So what I want to do today is I just want to, we, we've, we normally, you know, we go verse by verse by verse through Scripture, and we're not abandoning that, rest assured, we're in no way abandoning that. The problem is you can't just jump into Genesis and start going verse by verse through it without understanding some context, what it is, why we're here, what we're doing, what the overview is. You know we generally do an overview and an introduction uh, as we start any new book, and Dan did that last week, but Genesis needs two introductions. It just, it just, there's just a lot there so that you can understand as we go into it what's going on. So my mission today, if I can, as much as I can get through, I will try not to bring too much in. My mission today is to present to you Genesis in the broader narrative of Scripture— which means the narrative of humanity and how it points to the end and why that's relevant to us. And I'm going to do that by hitting the main themes in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are largely considered the prehistory portions of Genesis. We can't unpack them all, but I want to hit some themes. And I'm going to draw out a particular framework that I think will be helpful to you as we go through Genesis, a way of thinking, and that framework is the nations, the nations, the nations. Think about the nations. We don't think about them a lot because that that word that kind of doesn't mean a lot to us like what nations is is the US a nation? No, biblically it's not. When the Bible talks about the nations, it's talking about a specific set of, of humanity and how humanity was originally divided at the beginning. And then that narrative, if you understand it, lights up the rest of Scripture because if you think through, just think through the Psalms you know and the prophecies you know and all the books you've read. And the nations are in here all over the place, and I think it's one of the most helpful uh, lifelines we can grab onto and hang onto for dear life as we go through Genesis to try and understand what the heck this book is saying, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, Lord, uh, we just ask in Jesus' name that you, you still our hearts and our minds, that you bring peace and clarity, that your spirit lights up our hearts, Father, We pray against the distractions. We pray against uh, lies. We pray against false teachings. And Lord, we come to you and your word, trusting that you will meet us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can't tell, I've been excited to preach this particular message for a long time. Slightly terrified, but also very excited to preach this particular message. There's so much in here. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's so many sermons in there, but there's one main thing I want to point out in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? If you can get that right, then the rest of the Bible is going to go better for you. But then it says, now the earth was then without form and void. Now, we have to put this in the context of other things, and one of the one of the passages I'm going to refer to frequently is the, the section of Job that's 38 through 41, because this is when God scolds Job for all of his accusations and says, who comes into my assembly and darkens without counsel and has all this stuff to say, let me remind you who I am. And what he does in that Job 38 passage is he goes back through creation. It's totally worth spending some time there as we're going to be teaching creation. So please do that. But one of the things he says is the angels were watching the creation of the earth and shouting for joy as he populated the earth and designed man and put plants and animals and things on the earth. So we say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's true. And then it goes on and starts talking about the earth. But biblically what we know there is the heavenly beings were created by God, but they also predated the earth. Okay? Now that I don't there's way too much we can do there, but the the point is there was something that happened in between. Now, this is not, I'm not saying, oh, this is our millions of years of geological time record. And let me just put this up front. Guys, um, you're gonna find out real quick as, I, as we teach through Genesis. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the Darwin's theory of evolution is going off the rails, coming apart. The more we learn about science, we know it doesn't work. That's just me. You may disagree. We're not going to start a whole lot of debates about that. We're going to preach what the text says. And the text just, you can't make this agree with evolutionist theory. It doesn't work. So when I say something happened between the creating of the heavens of the earth and the development of the earth, I'm not trying to reconcile some uh, you know, astronomical time period. I don't have to back into that time because I don't buy it. I don't think that time, I don't think that the billions and millions of years, I don't think it adds up correctly um, for a lot of reasons. And we can have those conversations. We may do some Sunday school additional work on that if you guys want to. But just taking for granted, what I'm saying is something spiritual happened between God creating the heavens and the earth, and then this earth creation narrative that we get to, because we show up and the earth is here, but it's without form, it's void, it's described as being chaotic and dark, and described as an abyss. Now, if you want to, and it's worth doing, but we don't have time, go look up all the Hebrew words because it uses very distinct, profound Hebrew words to describe the earth. It says darkness, and it's not talking darkness as of the absence of light. It's talking the kind of darkness that terrified the Egyptians during the plague. It's a, it's a thing was there. When it says the spirit was hovering over the deep, when it says the deep, we don't understand what it means is the, the deep, deep, deep depths of the abyss. So the earth was this chaotic, dark thing The Spirit of God was hovering over it. But the angels existed because we know from the Job passage that God in His own voice said, the angels watched me do this, and they rejoiced. We also know that shortly after man's created, which is just a few days in, uh, then Satan's there, and he's already wanting to destroy it. So you need to take this idea that there was already uh, heavenly beings, and there was already some sort of problem going on, some sort of rebellion that was happening at the, by the time man was created. You can try to back it into other things, but it doesn't make sense because we, I, I buy the creation account. We're going to teach the creation account as six days. Well, I don't think there was an entire cosmic uprising and falling within six days. I think there was more to it, and I think it predates this. and there's a reason why I'm, I'm harping on that. So God creates and populates the earth he creates man. Then we get to the first major fall. There are three falls in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The fall of man in the garden, Adam and Eve, we know that story. Then we get the fall of something called the sons of God in chapter six, which everybody skips because it's weird. I'm not gonna, we're gonna talk a lot about it. And then we get Babel, which is another fall. So there are three, and I'm not saying that the first fall wasn't, I'm, I'm not, I don't, don't take that for more than it's worth. I'm just saying there are three major sin events is what I'm saying. I'm not saying the first fall didn't count. It, it did count. That was the fall of man. Then we have the fall of the sons of God. And then we have the fall of the nations, if you want to think of it that way, at Babel. So what happened in the garden? Now, you know, I love teaching on this, but I'm just going for who was there and what happened. That's it. Not, not all the meaning behind it. Well, in the garden, we have this thing show up called the serpent. And we know from other portions of Scripture, it tells us that serpent was the devil. I want to illuminate that a little, little bit. So turn with me to Ezekiel 28, because it's worth asking, who's the devil? Like, who is he? Jesus talks about him in a very specific personal way, like he's a, a guy that Jesus knows. And that's the way he's presented in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's trickier because the devil, the, the word that we get the, the Hebrew word Satan just means adversary or accuser. It's more of a title. And so it's it's hard to pin it down. But we get this passage in Ezekiel that is very, very enlightening. So what you see is prophecy against the prince of Tyre, which is the first 10 chapters or 10 verses of Ezekiel 28. And, you, and he basically saying, hey, you leader, you, you know, you're, you're the political leader of Tyre. I gave you a lot. You've rebelled against me. That was a bad idea. And then this weird thing happens in verse 11. He shifts and he says, hey, now prophesy against the king of Tyre. Well, I thought, I thought we just talked about the king of Tyre. He says, no, no, that was the dude. Now I want to talk to you about who's behind the dude. So I'm going to start reading in Ezekiel twenty-eight eleven about what is called the king of Tyre. And you'll quickly realize he's not talking about a guy on a throne here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created and prepared, you were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings. What kings is he talking about? What kings watched this to feast their eyes on you, verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Again, who who saw this? All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. That's the devil. He just explained where he came from, who he was, what happened, and confirmed that he was in Eden. And then when we get to Revelation, it confirms again that he was the one in Eden deceiving Eve. And it describes him as not just any serpent. This isn't just a snake. He says he's, he was beautiful. He was covered in stones. He was encrusted. He was powerful. And the, that, the, that wording there is describing light and radiance. And there's, there was something magnificent there. And guys, one of the things that you're going to have to get used to as we go through Genesis, especially as we get up to the flood, is we have only a very vague idea of what creation was like before the flood. Because what we do know is everything changed after the flood. It was completely different. So set aside all your preconceived notions, set aside your, your idea that the Garden of Eden was just this you know, Caucasian man with a good haircut wandering around with his pretty young wife in in the nude and just, you know, picking apples off trees. There's a lot more to it than that. And what it says is this was a time when when God would come walk in the Spirit and that that was a normal thing, that He would walk in the breeze of the day. Your Bible says the cool of the day, but that, that word is actually the same word for the Holy Spirit. He would come and He would walk And apparently, others were there too, and there was all of creation. And one of the main things he had Adam do is look at all of creation before Eve was made and say, this is not for me. 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 And that's repeated over and over and over and over until he gets Eve and he says, okay, this is for me. And that's a beautiful story of uh, what God was making. And you got to ask yourself, why did he d- bring Adam through that exercise? Why did he make Adam repeat and, repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat to understand why and how he had organized creation? The other thing you need to understand about creation is it's not, the, the biblical account of creation is not designed to explain how creation worked. That's not what it's for. You can get a lot of scientific insight, but that's not primarily what it's for. Because we, in our Western scientific minds, demand that everything, you know, meets our science because that's how we think. The Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew, was trying to understand what creation was and who was in charge and how it was ordered and what the authority structure was. And it's much more oriented towards explaining the order of the cosmos, not the how of the cosmos, but more so the what and the why of the cosmos. So, So we get that. The serpent shows up. Goes after Eve, we're back in Genesis chapter 3, and she believes him. And what he tells her is, you can be like the gods. Let's go, let's go ahead and go to chapter 3, um, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's another thing. This is going to be hard, but stick with me on this. The word they're using for God is Elohim. Elohim is a plural word of Elohi. Elohi or Elo is God, but it's not, it's, it applies to more than one being. In fact, you'll see, and I'll show you later, that, that God calls other things around him Elohim. So it's more of a class of being than it is of one specific being. Now God, listen to me on this, I'm not saying... That God is, you know, I'm not going into pantheology or anything like that. What I'm saying is, God is preeminent among what he created, but when he's described as Elohim, it's more saying what kind of being he is, and he created other beings that m- fell into that same category, and it's always a plural word, and it's very hard to translate. Well, and I'll show you some of the tricky areas of that. So there are some Bibles that say, that the serpent told Eve, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And other Bibles that say, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like the gods, knowing good and evil. So who are the gods? Who are these kings? What are these, what are these other things? Because there's this plurality of something happening. And we get these weird things in Genesis where God says things like, let us create man in our image. And we're always told, hey, there's a, that's just the Trinity he's just referring to the plurality of the Trinity. But the question I ask is, why doesn't he do that in the rest of the Bible? Why, isn't it not, why is it here that he says, let us, but everywhere else he talks about himself in the singular, even though we know the Trinity is a, is a real thing. So I'm not denying the Trinity, but why the plurality here? And the reason, and you've heard me talk about this before, is because it wasn't in a vacuum, there were people watching. Something was observing everything that's going on here, and even as the serpent was participating to an extent in what's going on here. We just talked about the fall of Satan, how he was cast down after being created as a cherub. The cherub, by the way, is the highest class of angel. There's not very many of them. There's a lot of angelic beings, but that's a whole complex scenario. But the cherubim were the the supreme angels, and he casts Satan down, and he said, I did it in front of all the kings. So there's a hierarchy of authority in the creation that God made. So you have to set aside your, you know, your, your Sunday school concept of, of Eden, where it was just God, he's kind of lonely, so he makes a friend out of clay and makes him alive. That's not what the Bible actually says. The Bible says that there was a whole lot that happened in a spiritual sense. Then the earth was created. And when the earth was created... The sons of God, as, we, as I alluded to, which you'll find in Job chapter 38, shouted for joy on the creation, but we know not all of them did because at least one of them was going, I don't like that, and I'm going to mess it up. Okay? So he goes in, and Eve seems fine talking to the devil, whatever, and he shows up as this serpentine reptilian creature but was beautiful. That's a theme that goes all the way through Scripture as well. We'll visit some of those places. And all she can say, and he says, hey, God told you, he said you can't eat any of the fruit. She said, no, I can, but I can't eat from that tree, and I'm not even supposed to touch it, which God didn't say. We'll leave that for um, others to teach on. And I'm not even supposed to touch it. And he says, well, what God really knows is, um, you know, if you eat it, you'll be like the gods, or depending on how you want to look at it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And I'm more comfortable with, You'll be like the gods, knowing good and evil, because God doesn't know evil. Know, the knowledge word, is a very, very intimate word. At the beginning of chapter 4, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. God doesn't know evil. He's aware of evil, but he's apart from evil. He's absent from evil. So what Satan says here is, you'll be like the gods. You'll know good and evil. And Eve says, that sounds fun. And so she eats it. Adam comes along, and we know from what Paul says, he's not deceived. He knows exactly what he's doing, which is twofold interesting. On one hand, you can say he's a complete bonehead, but on the other hand, it says something about how much he loves Eve, that he would go with her knowingly into this sin because he wanted to be with her what she was doing. So they fall. Then there's this curse, which I'll preach on more in depth later. But God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Why do we skim over that? We're made of dust. That's horrifying. The very next thing he says to Adam is, from dust you came, dust you should return. He just told the serpent, you're going to eat dust. Ugh. Right? In Jude, it tells us that um, uh, God and Moses fought, or sorry, God and the devil fought over Moses' body, and Michael fought on God's side over Moses' body. Why were they fighting over Moses' body? Leave that for your dreams tonight. Um, then he says this thing in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And the word there is between your seed and her seed. Why do we skip this? This is very very important. We know her seed is a messianic prophecy of, what, of how God's going to draw Christ out to redeem us. What is his seed? What is that? That's a big problem. He says there's two seeds here, two lines, and that they're going to war within each other. We get to Cain and Abel. One kills the other. There's an immediate enmity I don't go so far as to say that Cain was necessarily the seed of the evil one, although Jude does. He says Cain was of the devil, and they were born at the same time because they're both described two births, one conception, but we don't have to make a big deal out of that. That's just one of those things I was going, how did I never notice this before? Cain and Abel. Then we get to a real fun section, uh, Genesis 6, increasing corruption on the earth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, I'm in Genesis 6, 1, and daughters were born to them, and when it says man, the word man is just Adam. Adam is the word for man. Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are the sons of God? (laughs) Well, there's a a long-held, and it was especially through Augustine, the Catholic Church, saying that, What you have here is really it's the sons of Seth who had since been born were the righteous ones and they shouldn't have been intermarrying with the sons of of, uh, Cain and that that was a wrong thing to do. That's just not a sound interpretation. It's not in the Bible. There was no prohibition against intermarrying at this point, but God had said, be fruitful, increase in number. There's nothing that says that the sons of Seth were particularly more righteous than the sons of Cain. Cain actually named many of his children after God and worship to God. So we don't really know the state of Cain's heart after he murdered his brother. So you can't just say, oh, this is the Sethites and the Cainites. It's not. It says the sons of God saw the daughters of men. It doesn't say the daughters of Cain, it says the daughters of men. So what are the sons of God? Let's keep going. Whatever happened there, and we'll we'll spend a lot of time in it when I'm gonna be preaching the pre-Noaic portion, whatever happened there, was so bad and so destructive that God said, uh, guys, we're going to wipe all this out. It was so such an abomination and filled the earth to such, such an extent that God pulled one guy, Noah, who I'll, I'll leave it to you to read about Noah, but he says, Noah was a righteous man and he was pure in his generations. His bloodline was pure. So that means not very many others were at that point. And he took all the animals on the ark according to their kinds, and then he wipes it all out. Let's go back to that chapter six portion, though, because when it talks about those sons of God, it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's a ticking clock warning. And then it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they, were, and they bore children to them and these were mighty men of old, the men of renown. What are the Nephilim? Where are they and what happened? And we'll spend some time on that because it's an absolute rabbit hole. It's a very entertaining rabbit hole, but it's, it's probably better suited for a Sunday school class. So the sons of, so you get that he says the Nephilim, that Nephilim were some sort of mighty, powerful hybrid creature. Something was going on there. They were not regular people. The uh, and, and something you need to know, as as I've been studying this, it's very worth reading all the other literature. Like go read every single ancient creation account. If it's more than four thousand years old, it's worth reading, guys, because it. According to the Bible, that was pretty close to the beginning. Go read the Sumerian account. Go read the Babylonian account. Go read the Egyptian account. Go read the Aztec account. Go read the Mayan account. Read the Native American legends. Read what they all say. They all say the same thing. They all say, a creator made people, and these other things that they call gods came down and intermixed with the people, and it messed everything up, and then there was a flood. They all say the same thing, and they all say, and one guy preserved one line on the flood, and it was a global flood. So everything was wiped out. So let's stop trying to, to force all this in and, just, and act like, oh, we can just explain all that away as myth and legend. No, this happened. Something like that happened. And the Bible tells us specifically that it happened. And this is not the only place the Bible talks about the Nephilim. So then we get to the nations descended from Noah after the flood. That's in chapter 10. And I'm going to start speeding up here. We get to the Tower of Babel, the fall of the nations. Now the whole earth had one language, I'm in chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. By the way, that's a clue that whatever we're thinking of the mountains of Ararat are not quite what they were thinking of the mountains of Ararat, because they're coming from the east after the the ark, and they're coming to this place where Babylon is going to be established, and they build this tower. And what they say is... Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, these people weren't fools. We think, oh, those morons, you can't build a tower to heaven, to outer space. That's not what they were saying. The heavens are the spirit realm. They're building a very tall, monumental temple. They're building something that is to reach back to whatever had been happening in chapter 6 because they want to re-engage with these gods. They're saying, we want the top of our tower to be in the heavens. So think of it more like a, a temple ziggurat. And this, by the way, is very consistent with Babylon. And if you read the Babylonian ancient literature, they say this is exactly what was happening. Now, the problem here is twofold. That's not what God wanted them to do. And it's not what God told them to do. He told them to fill the earth and spread out. And they all came back together and said, let's specifically not do that. And instead, let's return back to these gods. It says, God doesn't like this. It actually says in other places there was an outcry against this. You've got to ask yourself, well, who's crying out? And he goes down, and the Lord said, it says in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us. There's that us thing again. Don't ever ignore that. It always means something. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand each other's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and left off building the city. Therefore, its name was Babel. Now they do return to there. Then it goes immediately into this line of Shem. And you get to Abraham. Because God says, spread everybody out. You, you're going to be mine. You're going to be my people. So what does that mean? Moses tells us, go to Deuteronomy 30. We need to understand what really happened at Babel. Actually, go to 32. We're shorter on time, so let's, uh, I'm going to plow through this. Moses spoke the words of the song until they were finished. Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. This is called the Song of Moses. really important part of Scripture. It's actually quoted in Revelation. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distilled as the dew. I should start all my sermons like that. Um, Go to uh, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, the God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They've dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Who's he talking about? He says, his children, they're twisted. They dealt corruptly with him. Do you also thus repay the Lord, or do you thus repay the Lord with foolishness and senseless, you people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Now, this is where it gets really weird. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. He's talking to the Israelites right before they go to the promised land. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High, Deuteronomy 32, 8, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's Babel, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is his allotted heritage. So this is what it's saying. He says, he divided all the nations... And he allocated the Hebrew language errors, he allocated them according to the sons of God. He set these sons of God over the nations. And then he drew out one nation for himself. And it said, that's his inheritance. Go down to verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's a name for the Hebrews, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him, and he scoffed at the rock his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. This watch the progression here. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. So gods and then abominations, meaning something something ugly that shouldn't have happened, that are not necessarily gods, but not necessarily people either. They sacrificed then to demons that were not gods, and then to gods they had never known, and then to new gods who had come along recently whom your fathers never even knew about or or dreaded. What on earth is this whole plot in the Bible that like we've never talked about ever? What is this? This is the story of the nations in Scripture. This is what God did. He created people. Satan attacked them, had them fall, and then brought with him and I'm, I'm going extra biblical here, but this is what, the, what all of the ancient literature seems to agree, and some of those ancient sources are quoted in the Bible, brought with him others of his class and messed up all of creation through breeding genetically, messed it up. God says, I don't like this, wipes it out with the flood. The nations, rather than spreading out, say, no, we want to go back to those gods. He says, no. And he assigns them, he disperses them, and he assigns them according to his sons. So he sets kings over them. And then he takes one for himself. Does this seem weird and creepy? It's what it says. And I tell you what, the rest of the Bible makes a whole lot more sense in this. So let's go to Psalm 82. So how did it go? When he assigned these other nations, how did it go? What happened? Go to Psalm 82. Actually, on the way, stop at Psalm 58 just for kicks. I also want to show you something here that is upsetting to me as I study this. Do you indeed decree what is right? So I'm in Psalm 58, verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Raise your hand if your Bible doesn't say gods. If you have an NIV, it says you kings. The word there is L. It's not kings, it's God. The reason they translate it that way is because it's very upsetting if they translate it accurately. Very upsetting. Do you decree what's right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No, it says. In your hearts you devise wrong and your hands deal out violence on earth. Okay, that's our first clue that it's not going so well. Go to Psalm 82. I know we're close on time. I'm going to wrap up here soon. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. They're having a meeting. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. What the heck? This is what it says. And there are, there, again, you may have English translations that try and soften this, but the word here is Elohim sits among the Elohim. He takes his place in the council of the Elohim and sits down in the middle of him. And then it's in quotes. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He's scolding them. He's saying, you guys are doing a terrible job. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. The foundations of the earth are shaken. Go to verse 6. Jesus quotes this in John. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. You shall fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. The whole point of what God's doing with us is he's redeeming the nations back to himself. And in doing so, he's going to defeat and crush Satan and all those who turn against him. How do we know this? Last place, let's have the worship team come on up. Go to Psalm 2. And we're just sampling some things, guys. There's there's a lot more in here. Go to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. These are not... Men, these are gods. We can go into all the argument for it, but given the plot we just described, this makes perfect sense. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're saying, let's get out from under this Yahweh once and for all. They don't like him. They want out. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. This is Christ. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with rods of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That doesn't make any sense if you just think he's talking about people groups. Why would Jesus come and start crushing people groups? He's not talking about people groups. He's talking about kings who have rebelled against God. Now, therefore, O kings, in verse 10 of Psalm 2, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're going to do our very best to be honest with the text of Genesis, even when it's really weird and really uncomfortable. See, the problem, brothers and sisters, is the, the, the broad Western church has told you that this is what the Bible says. It says, God made you, and he loves you, and you sinned. That's okay, because Jesus is really nice, and he, he died for you, and if you ask him, he'll come live in your heart. Isn't that nice? And then you can be better. That's not wrong, but that's not all the Bible says. Do you wonder why so many Christians have this existential crisis going then, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What's the point Why did God make me? Why is there sin in the earth? What's going on? When is this going to end? How is this going to wrap up? What is heaven? What's the point of heaven? Why why do I even want to be there? What does it mean to be with God? Why is it such a big deal when I sin? Because that little slice of the gospel doesn't address those things. You have to understand what the Bible really says. What the Bible says is there's a lot more going on, and you're the object lesson in the narrative. And that ultimately, it's not about you being better. It's about God showing that he is the righteous king and he's the rightful king and that he's going to crush the rebellion. And if you don't understand, you need to know that rebellion is still going on. It's very active. That rebellion against him is very active. Yes, there are false gods. There are idols that don't count. But there are also strange gods; those who turned against the Lord deceive the nations, and that's why Satan in uh, Revelation is described as the great deceiver of the nations. Let's start worship together, and I want you to think on this, guys. I understand if you've never thought about this before. I understand it's upsetting. I was, you know, you can talk to some of the other elders. I had meetings with something going like, uh, guys. Um, Here's what I'm seeing, and this is upsetting. It's a little bit of an ontological shock. If you've never really thought about it before, all of a sudden, everything kind of gets a little sideways and topsy-turvy. But then you come back to Scripture, and you realize, oh, this makes much more sense now. It all lightens up. Everything comes to life, and the timeline starts to get really short when you start looking at it. Let's start worship together. I'll come back and lead us in uh, communion together. In John chapter 1, then he tells us who Jesus really is and what he's really doing. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. He's He's saying he wasn't created. He's preeminent. He's not like the other heavenly beings. He was with God from the very, very beginning. He wasn't created. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he's telling you there's a conflict from the beginning, and Jesus is preeminent, and we just read that in Psalm 2 about them saying, hey, you, you nations, you who are trying to turn against God, you who think that you can shake off his authority forever, you're setting themselves up for destruction, the son is going to be the king. He's the the Lord that you should be acknowledging and honoring, and if you don't, it's to your own destruction. So what are we doing here? What's our point? The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God or children of God. That's what we are. If you go to Revelation and read the, the wedding of the Lamb, where he's being wed to his church, the witnesses to the wedding are not just the you know us and the Lamb, it's all the kings and all the nations. And they're watching us be brought into that family to be seated in glory alongside the Lamb. That's pretty staggering, isn't it? Those sons of God who rebelled in the beginning, who, who refused to acknowledge God, who fell away, the story of Scripture is that Jesus is the rightful King, If they won't acknowledge him, they'll be destroyed. The ones who will acknowledge him will rule with him. And he's bringing his own people and setting them up and replacing those original sons of God. That's really out there, isn't it? This is why Paul says things like, hey, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? And you've heard me joke about that before. Like, no, we don't think about that a lot. But that's what we're doing. We've studied this before. We go to uh, Titus. Go to Titus chapter two. Some of you remember this was some of the very this section was some of the very first uh, messages I ever preached at Aletheia. Titus two eleven through fourteen. For the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, so training us to not follow sinful desires, not follow other gods, not follow sin, but rather to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, in verse 14, he did two things, gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. And this is why this is such a fun message for Palm Sunday. He is the king. He's the king. He's the king of the nations. When he showed up on earth, the first thing, the devil came to him and said, hey, you see all the nations, see all the kings? I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. Because they've all gone after Satan at this point. All those kings have gone after Satan. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. I worship God and only God. And in Revelation, let's go to Revelation 20. Give you the spoiler alert. This is the end. If you haven't read through Revelation recently, it's, it's worth reading, especially in light of what we've discussed today. Actually, let's go to 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. I'm in 19, verse 11. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His cloth, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's what we just read in John 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Striking down the nations. He's not going after murdering a bunch of ignorant people who don't know what's going on, people who have one political affiliation or another. That's not what he's talking about. It's the nations, the nations that fell away, the nations that turned against him that we read about in Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage? Why do they take counsel together, saying, Let's turn against him, let's throw off his authority once and for all? He will rule them with a rod of iron. That should sound familiar. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King. He's the King of the nations, and ultimately He's redeeming all the nations to himself. And this is why in Matthew, at the very end of Matthew, which we just finished studying, he said he resurrects from the dead, and he says, Guess what, guys? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go tell the nations go tell the nations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible, overwhelming story of your word. We thank you that you've promised that we sit with you in glory. And Lord, if that's not grace, I don't know what is because we were nothing those who have rebelled against you have tried to crush us from the beginning and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you, preserving us, dying for us, redeeming us from lawlessness and calling us your own people and saying we have the right to be sons of God, daughters of God. Lord, implant this urgency in our minds and implant this this desire for to see that, to see your day and to be on the right side of that when it comes. You are our king. Amen. We have communion up here, and communion is a good time to remember that that king of ours gave a great price to be able to include us in his family, his supernatural, mighty family that will rule over powers and authorities and principalities, as Paul says. He paid a great price to call us to that family, and we should remember that price he paid, the flesh and blood. We also have... Uh, joyful giving. We have uh, boxes around. You're welcome to give. Of course, you can give online, and that's that's not because we're asking for your money. I don't get a penny of it, and I don't want it. But it's because it's good for you to give what God gives to you and give it back to Him. He blesses that. It shows who you're, where your loyalty is, and He He'll take care of you in that. And then pray. Talk to your King. Talk to your King talk to him about the places where you've been unfaithful to him. He urges, even, even the, the heavenly kings who turn against him, he urges them through scripture to repent and come to him. If that seems really weird to you, go read First and 2 Peter. He urges them to come to him before it's too late so he doesn't have to destroy them. He urges you to come to him before it's too late. If, you, if he's not your king, if he's never been your king, if, you, if something clicked today that had never clicked before, then it's a good time to pledge your loyalty to him, to come talk to him and say, hey, I've been a sinner. I've been a rebel against you. Hey, can I be part of your family? Scripture teaches us the answer is always yes. It's always yes. If you've never prayed that before, then come, come pray with me. Come pray with one of the elders. Pray with anybody in this room. There are uh, women around who would love to pray with you if you're more comfortable praying with one of the sisters. Um, we, uh, we don't have them standing in corners, but you can, they're not hard to find. If you need somebody, ask me. I'll find you somebody. All right. I love you guys. This is exciting. Genesis is exciting. It's so exciting. Let's continue to worship together.